welcome to Fitter and Faster. My name is Emma Kate Lidberry, your host and managing editor here at Triathlete Magazine. Each month, we'll be tackling one triathlon training topic in depth and giving you everything you need to know. This month, it's all about training zones. What are they? Why are they important? How do you establish your own training zones? How frequently should you test and retest them? And how do training zones differ across sports? After we cover the basics, we'll be joined later in the episode by Olympian and coach Ryan Bolton, who'll be answering some of our more complicated questions and talking about the importance of really sticking to these zones, as well as common mistakes he sees athletes making. Plus, we'll have our senior editor and gear guru, Chris Foster, joining us for our gear up section. On each show from now on, Chris will be chatting with us about all the relevant gear related to the show's topic. In this instance, it'll be heart rate monitors, watches, power meters, and plenty more. All of that after this short break. Want in-depth gear reviews, training stories on the latest science, exclusive content, discounts, and more? Then check out ActivePass. Our ActivePass membership gives you a magazine subscription, two VeloPress books, and access to all of our sister brands, including VeloNews, Podium Runner, Yoga Journal, Women's Running, and plenty more. Go to triathlete.com backslash ActivePass. That's triathlete.com backslash ActivePass to find out more. Okay, so let's talk training zones. We all know there's a difference between going hard and going easy, but what exactly are training zones and how do you establish them? There are a variety of ways to break up the zones on a scale from very easy to very hard, but coaches commonly use training zones one through five, with one being the easiest. So let's break down what that means. Zone one means easy, aerobic recovery training on a scale of one to ten in your perceived effort, think three or four. You're just moving blood through your body and everything should feel very easy and very relaxed. Zone two is a step up from there. This is endurance training. It's around a five out of 10 in perceived effort. You can have conversations with your training buddies and friends and everything should feel very sustainable for a long amount of time. After that, it brings us up to zone three, medium endurance training. We're talking a strong but sustainable effort, a six or a seven out of 10 on the scale of perceived exertion and, uh, It should feel hard, but it's comfortably so. For most athletes, this is where you would race a half Ironman or a half marathon, which leads us to zone four, probably the one that we all dread. It's your threshold training zone. And yes, we'll talk more about that word threshold later in the show and what it means. But uh, zone four is pretty much an eight or a nine out of 10. It's hard. It's your maximal steady state effort. And for elite athletes, this is probably the hardest they can sustain for an hour or so but you can go harder. And that's zone five. It's very hard. And this is all about power and speed. It's an effort you can only sustain for a minute or so. It's high-end, high-intensity work. Of course, just knowing these zones is one thing and using them is something else altogether. They really only have relevance to your training once you've established where those different zones are for you. You want to know and learn what pace or effort is for zone three versus zone four or five, for example. And then you want to actually follow that across all of your workouts. This is best achieved through benchmark testing. And that means you do a test to establish where you're at. You establish your threshold and then you figure out your zones from there. We'll talk more later about specific tests that you can do. But yes, you do need to test in each sport, swim, bike and run, as the zones will vary across the sports. Once you've tested, you'll have a benchmark for where you're at. That could correlate to a pace, perceived effort, a heart rate or power numbers on the bike, for example. Uh, The swim pace you can hold in the pool for a thousand yard TT might give you a base pace that you can then extrapolate your zones off. And we talk about this with Ryan later in the show. 
but you can also use a variety of metrics, heart rate, power, perceived effort. Coaches use these zones when building out a training plan and a certain proportion of work needs to be higher intensity and a certain amount needs to be lower intensity. And depending on your skill set, experience, fitness, goals, and of course, the time of the year, these amounts could vary. But one thing is for sure. The physiological effect and adaptations that come from training in one zone versus another can have a big impact on your development, recovery, and performance. Coaches can be quite particular on this topic. For example, saying that you stay in zone one or two during your base phase training this time of year, January, February, and you don't go any harder because this can stress your system more than is needed uh, in this particular training phase and actually set you back. And this is something, again, Ryan talks about later in the show, and it all comes back to the golden rule of polarized training, doing your easy workouts easy so you can do your hard workouts hard. Now, we've mentioned heart rate, perceived effort, power, and pace, and these are all metrics you can use to know how hard you're going and what zone you're in. And they all have different pros and cons. And of course, they all vary from sport to sport. For example, your heart rate will typically be lower for swimming than it is for biking in the same zone and lower for biking than it is for running, which is why it's important to test across all three sports and keep retesting. So when it comes to metrics, many coaches like using pace, especially in the pool and on the track. But remember that some days your pace might be slower or faster for the same effort level. On the bike, power is the popular go-to metric. It's measured in watts and is another way to calculate how hard you're going and know where you are in real time. You can also learn to cross-reference that with heart rate. Most importantly, over time, you'll learn what a certain pace, zone, or power feels like based on your effort level. And of course, this can take time to learn and develop by fine-tuning your perceived effort with a heart rate monitor, GPS watch, or power meter, But once you've got it nailed, it is truly invaluable and it will help guide your training. Now that you know how important training zones are and how they're defined, we're going to chat with coach and Olympian Ryan Bolton about the specific tests he uses, how he calculates training zones and just how important they are for his work with his athletes. Coach Ryan Bolton, thank you so much for joining us on Fitter and Faster today. We know that you know a thing or two about training zones and uh, obviously something you implement every day in your training with your athletes. So do you want to start off by telling us how you use training zones with your athletes? Yeah, training zones, they're kind of a a critical foundation of everything we do. It's they provide guidance for both me as a coach, but also as athletes on, you know, where to be. And I think, um, as, as athletes, you know, get more experienced and, um, you know, like further along in their endurance careers, a lot of times, like, you know, they start to be able to even like feel where these zones are, but especially when you're dealing with athletes that are just getting into endurance sports, um, it's a huge guideline set, uh, for all three sports. Um, and, um, yeah, for swimming, you know, personally, like I like to use as far as zones go, like I, I like to use pace zones more than anything. And, yeah. um, you know, you can you can watch heart rate while swimming and um, and that's good. But, you know, pace zones are a really great way to get an athlete, um, you know, to, to kind of adhere to them and, and also to set goals with them. But uh, also it's easy to prescribe workouts that way because you can say, hey, I want you swimming, you know, at this uh, at this part of your pace zone or this many seconds off per 100, say, yards or 100 meters of your pace zone. 
Um, so yeah. that's really nice. The, the cool thing about swimming now too is, as you know, you know, there's new technology that, you know, like the goggles, et cetera, where you can actually be looking at real time pace in, in your goggles. So yes. um, that's really incredibly helpful as well. Um, with cycling, uh, 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 you know, you can look at heart rate uh, and you can look at power using those for zones. I think power is uh, incredibly beneficial and, and more accurate than heart rate zones. And um, so I always encourage athletes, uh, at least that I work with, uh, I almost require them to use a power meter <laughs> because it is uh, it, it's establishing power zones on the bike is, is, is it's really easy to do. And once again, it's really easy to keep athletes then in their proper zones and also um, to watch and track progress. But power zones are also incredibly uh, beneficial for to help establish like uh, pacing for for races too, and especially in long course racing. So, um, and then with running, man, you can use power zones, you can use heart rate zones, you can use pace zones. I personally like to use pace zones the best. But once again, um, they're all, you know, you can find a correlation with all of them um, and, uh, and you can actually use all three if you want to in some ways and, and uh, if, as long as you establish them correctly. But uh, same thing is it keeps athletes in line. What I find with zones and especially at this time of the year and like a base time of the year, if, if yeah. considering like Northern Hemisphere athletes, a lot of us are putting in base type training right now is uh, the beneficial is looking at the lower zones and making sure athletes stay in those lower zones because a lot of times people are chomping at the bit this time of the year and they want to hop into like zone five. And, uh, and so like, I, I feel like a lot of my feedback with athletes right now in regard to zones is, whoa, 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 you know, you're a little too hard, a little too high, slow that down. Yeah, that's going to be my, my next question to you actually was how do you keep your athletes in their appropriate zone? You know, especially yeah. especially this time of year or even you know maybe even in the summer or you know as we approach race season and you want to make sure that athletes are hitting zone four zone five like how do yeah how does that how does that work yeah, well, well first of all is getting it getting those zones established properly and i think a mistake that a lot a lot of times people make is you know you end your season in let's say october or something at a peak level of fitness yeah. And you have your zones established. And then now it's uh, January. You had a lot of holiday cookies and uh, you <laughs> haven't trained very much. And so your zones have changed that, you know, they, they've, uh, yeah, they probably changed pace zones, certainly power zones, certainly and everything. So making sure that they're reestablished and we can talk about, you know, that in a while, like how often, um, you know, you should, you should change zones or look at zones and everything. But um, I think that, uh, yeah, with athletes, the big thing is, is making sure those zones are set up properly and then making sure and giving them feedback on a pretty consistent basis based off of their, you know, their workouts and what you're seeing with their workouts, that they are staying within those zones and everything. And, you know, yeah. you, once again, I get feedback on both sides of the spectrum, both the, um, you're going too hard, um, you know, based on what your zones are right now, we're trying to keep this aerobic. But also sometimes if you're injecting a little bit of like higher intensity stuff, a, a common feedback point at this time of the year is, whoa, it was really hard to hit that zone, um, right. which is fine too. And, you know, gradually incorporating it in um, more intensity and, and it makes it easier and easier to hit, um, you know, the zones as kind of progress into the season. But the big piece of that is, is just giving the athletes uh, feedback on a relatively consistent basis on you know, if they are in those zones. And like I said, you get stubborn athletes, of course, as triathletes, a lot of us are pretty stubborn and, yes. um, and explaining to them. And like I said earlier, I think, I think the biggest, uh, 
uh, piece oftentimes is telling people to slow down, especially at this time of the year and uh, getting people to buy into that and to understand the physiology and the importance uh, behind like, you know, staying in your lower zones. Yes, yes, yes. So then let's dive into how you do establish those zones and uh, some of the tests. I mean, I know there are a multitude of tests out there, but let's talk about how you how you establish your training zones and the tests that you you prefer to use. Yeah. So, yeah, this could be a four hour conversation, probably. Yeah, I realized I just asked you a double hitter. <laughs> yeah, but no, it, it's 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 a great question, and there's a lot of different ways um, to do it. With with swimming, I like to do. There's a couple of tests. It depends on the um, the the length of distance that the athlete that I'm working with is is uh, competing in. But yeah. um, for you know for for a, a simple identifying what T pace or threshold pace is in the swim, um, I like to do uh, a 200 meter um, all out. Um, pushing off the wall, record the pace on that one minute break, and yep. then a thousand meter all out, basically time trial. Um, what that test shows me is the thousand meter time is often what T pace is. And, uh, and so that's what we can establish T pace zones on. Um, and if you want it, you can establish heart rate zones off of that uh, thousand meter too. I like to put the 200 in there because it tells me um, the difference in both their physiology for, you know, how quickly can they swim that 200 versus the thousand, but it also, um, slightly fatigues them for the thousand to give us a really good, accurate, uh, T pace for the thousand. So, um, when you say, when you say T pace, sorry to interrupt you, you mean threshold pace? Yes. Threshold pace. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. And that's how I like to establish zones. Um, like I mentioned before in swimming is I like to start with a threshold pace and then prescribe workouts based on that threshold pace, you know? And yeah. so, you know, I want you swimming your hundreds at T pace plus 10, which, you know, that's an aerobic swim means you're swimming at a hundred plus 10, um, hundred. Yeah. yeah. That's T pace plus 10 seconds per 100 and or at T pace or sub T pace, et cetera. So, yeah. Um, on the bike, uh, you know, you can do a, a, a simple heart rate test, max heart rate test and or threshold heart rate test. Um, with power, it's a lot easier. And, um, like I like to do a pretty old school functional threshold power test. Um, it's, it's one of the standards. I know people are always like changing what they do with them and everything. And of course, I, I, I think I, I should put a disclaimer on this is that, um, there, there are, is a lot of discussion on whether, you know, threshold tests actually, uh, establish what your one hour threshold number is for a functional mm -hmm. threshold power test. But I think that a lot of that has to do with you knowing your athlete and, you know, how, how to manipulate the numbers based on what you know about their physiology and them, which sometimes takes a long time to learn. But anyway, the, the, the FTP test that I like to do is, a, a the five minute, well, warm up and then do five minutes all out five mm -hmm. minutes spin and then 20 minutes all out. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, the 20 minute is the threshold test. I like to take 95% of that number and then establish the zones based on that number. Um, I know people, I, I like to create, uh, seven different zones in, in cycling. Um, a lot of people use six or seven, I would say, but, um, yeah. And, uh, in keeping it in, in the nice range, the, the reason why I like the five and 20 tests is because once again, it's kind of like the 200,000 tests in swimming is I can, on the five minutes, I can see how punchy of a rider are they? What is their five minute power relative to their 20 minute power? So we can understand 
maybe what we need to work on. But the other thing, and this is hugely important, the five minute uh, punch is uh, also fatigues the athlete for the 20 minute test, which gives us a little more of an accurate number of, of what maybe functional threshold power can be in that 20 minute test, even with taking the 95% of that. Right. And there's absolutely no space for, you can fake it, I think in a 200 or you know, a 200 swim or a five minute ish, you know, you could, you could probably get away with you know, a lot, um, but there's, exactly. no way, there's no way you're going to fake it on a thousand or, you know, 20 minutes. I don't think. Yeah. Um, um, that's exactly right. And a funny thing that you see with the uh, FTP test where you do the five minute and 20 minute is sometimes people sandbag that five minutes so <laughs> their five minute power is actually lower than their 20 minute power. And I'm Ooh. like, Hey, what are you doing here? And they're like, what are you, what are you talking about? And I'm like, listen, I've been doing this for a while. I know what I'm seeing here. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Everybody. But anyway, um, if somebody isn't using power, does that say, would you still, you know, if we're, if we're using, if they're using heart rate or even, you know, um, RPE, you know, uh, perceived exertion, does that same, do those same tests apply? Do you still? Exactly. You, you can still do the, the exact same thing or something quite similar. Like I would probably do a 30 minute test on the bike. Um, mm -hmm. And I would not do the five minute interval on the front end. I would do a 30 minute time trial all out. And, um, and I would, I would take that value as their threshold heart rate value. You can also do a max heart rate test on the bike, which is more of a ramp test. Um, Yep. where you're basically, you know, just getting faster and faster and faster until you completely um, break down over a relatively short period. You can do that over about 10 minutes. Um, but uh, I like I like using the threshold test over a max heart rate test on on the bike and on the run, actually. So, yeah. Yeah. And then so talk us through some of the, the tests that you would use on the run. Yeah. So the run, I have a bunch of different tests <laughs> and, uh, I'll, I'll, we'll, I'll do We'll do a threshold one and we'll do a, uh, a max. And, um, the threshold one is very simple is it's normally I'll have people do a, uh, a three, uh, or I'm sorry. Yeah. Three mile or a five kilometer on the track mm -hmm. and where they, where they do ramp the, the pace up gradually over time. And then I look at uh, their heart rate and where it jumped. It's hard to do um, a really good, like say threshold test on the run based on heart rate by just looking at the numbers. Of course, if you can get a person in a lab, then it's incredibly beneficial. But, um, yeah. but that's what I like to look at. I, I like to do, and I guess I like to do a, a, almost like a subaerobic test that's similar um, to test the gains in fitness over time. So the way that that one looks, this is a sub-threshold test is I just have someone run at a very specific heart rate based that is underneath what I know and or would guess to be their threshold heart rate to be. And, um, and then, so let's say 160 beats per minute, like 155, 160 beats per minute, that's often. And then we replicate that test um, over and over again, over you know long periods of time, because the goal of that sub-threshold test, and this is great for Ironman athletes, is to look at your progress over time. So you're running at exactly the same heart rate, but hopefully yeah. as you get fitter, you're running you're at a significantly good. faster pace. Exactly. Right. And then the, the max uh, test that I like to do, and this is to get max heart rate. And this is like a ramp test too. And it's pretty easy is basically if you know an athlete's threshold or near their threshold is I have them run a mile um, at about threshold pace four laps on the, the track, maybe and uh, building into it. And then the last 400 meters, every 100 meters, picking it up harder and harder and harder. So last, yeah, so that last 100 meters of the 2K ultimately is a sprint. And then that's a good way to get max value um, or max heart rate value on that. Um, 
the, really the best way to do, you know, a lot of this running physiology stuff and, and testing stuff is in a lab, but these are, those are great field tests that you can do that work pretty well. Yep. And how often do you look to repeat these tests and how often would you advise that people repeat these tests? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, th- to see, to track and see significant gains in fitness, it normally takes about six weeks, um, you know, for you to see, you know, jumps in, 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 you know, threshold numbers or, and or, um, you know, on bike power numbers, et cetera. So I like to test athletes every four to eight weeks. Um, mm-hmm. That's preferred. If an athlete is new with me or, or it's early in the season, the four week period is actually works better because they're, they're, they, they are making more fitness gains, you know, early on, as you get more established in the season, every eight weeks is pretty easy. Um, I think it also depends on the athlete. Some athletes hate testing yeah. <laughs> yeah. those athletes. I, uh, I test them a little bit less, but I actually incorporate uh, stuff into their workouts that I can kind of get those numbers off of. And everything. Uh, yeah, you know, more, yeah, yeah, kind of trick them into into testing without them knowing that I'm looking at numbers for them. But uh, but it's absolutely it's critical to do it. I would say at least on an every eight week basis because establishing those zones and making sure that those zones are correct are how your athlete is going to improve and going to get better. And, you know, for example, with power zones, if you're having people ride, you know, whatever, four by five minutes in zone four and um, and their zone four is no longer their zone four, they're not going to be getting nearly the benefit out of the workout anymore. So, yeah, making sure right. that we, we, we change those. And um, and if you're using like a platform like Training Peaks, for example, it's incredibly important to change those zones in Training Peaks so that TSS scores, et cetera, are being calculated properly, too, because those those points um, and training peaks will not be, uh, calculated properly if, if you don't have the zones in there properly. So yeah, it's important. Right. And the TSS being the training stress score, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so we've talked to, we've thrown around the words, uh, we've thrown around the word threshold a fair bit. And I know it's a word that gets thrown around a lot in training terms. Do you want to, let's just explore that. Um, and can you explain to us what we mean when we talk about threshold, aerobic threshold, anaerobic threshold, uh, so that people have a clear understanding of that? Yeah, definitely. Uh, we, uh, once again, this could be a two hour conversation pretty easily <laughs> and it's highly, and it's debated in the exercise physiology world a bit as well. Um, but like I would, I would say, um, I would call threshold is it's the pace in which, or, you know, the power number, et cetera, that in which you start, or you're just at the point of producing enough lactate in your system to that it where your lactate starts to jump and um and 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 then there's another jump in lactate actually a little bit later which you could call your anaerobic threshold where it really pops up mm-hmm. um you know a lot of our work so that's like technically physiologically that's where threshold is um you can look at that like I said if you have a person in uh doing a, a a physio- physiology test, you know, on a treadmill with, you know, that's analyzing gases, et cetera. Another way to look at that is you can look at the respiratory exchange ratio of an athlete. And, and when that, when you're basically, when your body starts consuming, uh, more, uh, 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 almost hundred percent sugar, <laughs> as opposed yep. to fat and sugar, that's, you're getting above threshold at that point as well. And, um, so, um, those are like two physiological parameters parameters that you can look at to identify threshold. As far as like training zones go, um, you know, or or how long can an athlete 
uh, you know, maintain a threshold pace. Um, you know, that varies significantly from athlete to athlete. I think, you know, you, if you look at elite marathoners, like elite elite marathoners, um, they can, they can maintain threshold for a couple hours and, um, you know, and, and, and actually a little bit over, if you look at like some of the numbers, like even based on what they did with the sub two project with uh, mm -hmm. Kipchoge and those guys, which is interesting. Um, you know, what we call threshold on the bike is, uh, an hour, you know, when, when you look at the functional threshold power test, like that's looking at our power, um, and everything. But once again, if you look at high end elite athletes, they have the ability to hold at threshold and or really near threshold for extremely long amounts of time and um right you know yeah and but and then levels of athlete beneath that you know your recreational athlete your age group athlete your beginner then that will all come down accordingly based on you know i guess uh, their time spent training their time spent in the sport their time you know, relatively yeah, normally, yeah, unless they have like a physiology that's super friendly, um, they're very aerobic based uh, physiology and they're very slow twitched athletes, then they probably have a tendency or the ability to hold near threshold for longer, um, you know, but those are also the same athletes that aren't as good as at, at punching over threshold on a frequent basis and being able to do it over and over again. So just it's a different type of physiology. Right. And so at this time of year, you know, we're in the deepest, dark, darkest depths of January. Uh, what, what kind of percentage of training is done for, you know, for, say for some of your athletes? I, mean, I know obviously it's going to be different for different athletes, but for sure. um, uh, taking like an average, how much training is done in zone one, how much training is done in zone five, zone four? Yeah, is for it, sure. Um, I would say 90 percent of training, uh, maybe even up to 95% of training is zone three or below at this point right. of the year in the base season. Yeah. Um, the, the stuff that bumps above that I would call neuromuscular work. And, um, so, you know, it's, it's getting in some punchy efforts on the bike, uh, shorter punchier efforts, and also say on the run and, or in the pool. And, uh, but I think the important thing at this time of the year, if you do do those punchier efforts and your heart rate does spike up, it's important to allow for a fair amount of recovery between each interval. So once again, it's more, it acts more as neuromuscular work than it does actual like anaerobic work. And then, you know, as we get further into the season, I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a pretty big advocate. And if I, it, I think it just falls naturally when you look at, uh, you know, training athletes, particularly like half iron Ironman athletes that, you know, the 80, 20 rule. So, mm -hmm. um, which I'm sure you're familiar with is, you know, 80% aerobic and, you know, 20% not basically, um, you know, as you get more into the season, then it starts falling into those ranges more. So it bumps up a little bit, but still this is our sport is a very aerobic and strength based sport. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, the whole, capacity or, or needing to go anaerobic uh, too frequently, especially if you're like a longer course athlete is really, it's not necessary that much. Yeah. And just, just briefly, what are some of the dangers or, or common mistakes you see when people are using training zones or they're not training in the right training zones, you know, you know appropriate for where they are in their, in their development, in, in, in the time of year, what, what are some of the dangers or what are some of the, the mistakes and, and the pitfalls, if you like, of maybe going too hard too soon or... Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, getting too much fitness too early is not a good thing. You can only maintain uh, a peak level of fitness for, you know, a relatively short amount of time. So if someone is going off and doing incredibly high intensity stuff 
Um, you know, they might be getting really good fitness gains from it right now, but is it going to benefit them for their A priority race in June? It's not. Mm -hmm. um, unless, and as a coach, unless you're working on some specific type of weakness um, that you want to work on right now prior to going back into a foundational, like base phase of training, I think that, um, you know, it's not really beneficial. Uh, uh, um, building at this time of the year, and I mean, this is my philosophy with coaching, but I, I'm a huge advocate of building that foundation and, you know, creating that base because I really do feel like that your peak is as high as your base is long. And right. so if you lay, if you lay down a really, really long base, then you flip that, you know, vertically and you have a, a really high, um, you know, uh, peak ultimately. And I, I guess what I say to my athletes or athletes is like, you could be going hard right now and you're going to be, you're going to have good fitness and you're going to have good fitness year round but you're never going to have great fitness. And right. if you really want to be great and you really want to peak for critical races, you have to go through the different periodized cycles. Yeah. So it's really a case of almost like you're holding the reins. No, totally. And that's, I guess, like what you said, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, the biggest mistake that I see athletes making is totally that going at this time of the year, they, they start getting excited and, uh, you know, they start wanting to go too high of intensity. And, uh, yeah, so keeping, like I said, holding those reins is important. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. When I was racing and training at the time, um, I always used to say, Be beware the Ides of March, you know, from Julius Caesar, March 15th. Yeah. You never want to do anything too hard, too fast, too intense before March 15th. Otherwise, yeah. Pay. I, I learned the hard way many seasons. Like you pay for it post, you know, in the in the in the depths of the season when you're looking at July, August, September, October, and you really want to peak. If you've been hitting zone four, zone, zone five in January, February, March, then yeah, you you feel it at the wrong end of the uh, year. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think you can see that with some athletes' careers too. And like speaking of like professional triathletes, as some athletes yep. like oftentimes they have those rock star. March and April's and then, you know, by October, they're nowhere, you know, to, to be seen, of course. Right. And, yeah. It's nice to be able to have, you know, those multiple peaks throughout the year. And uh, which, I mean, I guess is a critical, like when we're talking about this stuff, and I know we're talking about this time of the season, but I think it is important to go through maybe, you know, an earlier season peak um, or, I mean, it depends on the athlete or whatever, but after that is falling back into a base cycle where you do, you know, keep your, your zones in the, in the lower ranges and everything again. So allows for that recovery mid season. Cause I see that as an issue sometimes too. athletes just want to maintain that once they get into that peak fitness, let's even say that it's, you know, May or something, um, they want to maintain that till October. And I think that's a really difficult thing to do too. You kind of have to back off and then build back up again. Right. So that's all the, all the more reason to train appropriate train in the appropriate zones and stick to uh, and, and make sure you retest and retest and retest so that you're always training in the right zone and and seeing the, the most or the, the best gains i guess absolutely yeah keeping an eye on those numbers at all times is is uh, critical yeah so earlier in the week we put out a call for questions on our social channels ryan uh asking people to send us their training zones questions uh it seems like there is definitely a lot of obviously a lot of interest in the topic and uh, so we're going to throw a few of our questions from social media at you now. Uh, awesome. First one, is there a, spe a sweet spot for the percentage of time spent in different training zones based on the total number of hours of training done per week? Well, 
I think that's a complicated question because it depends on what zones you're considering are you, and, and what zone uh, periods you're using. You know, what, what are you using a five zone system? Are you using a six zone system? Are you using a eight zone system? Um, I'll go back to what we talked about, which is kind of conventional wisdom is ultimately if you look at, if you break it down and say that, you know, zone one, two, and three are more of your aerobic zones up to about threshold. And then when you get up to four and five um, and beyond are your more threshold and, and beyond zones, I would say 80% of the work needs to be in that three zone or below. There's tons of discussion on the validity and value of three zone and how much time you should spend there. And I think that's maybe the most controversial zone of all the zones and how much time you should spend in each of those zones. And my answer to that question on zone three and kind of to this whole uh, question is it also depends a lot on what event you're training for and, right. you know, Iron, Iron Man stuff. And, and the, my answer to that would be specificity you need to be adding, you need to be training in the zones as you get closer to whatever race that is um, more often that is specific to the effort that you're going to be seeing in the race. However, um, let's say you're doing sprint distance triathlons and, uh, you know, and a lot of that race is like at a really high intensity. It's still probably a threshold effort. Maybe you're going over at times, but um, I, I still, you can't spend too much time in that four and five plus zones because you'll, you'll crack, you'll break down and you'll get overtrained pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. Next question. Uh, should a beginner, a beginner in all three disciplines, swim, bike, and run, even concern themselves with zone training? Absolutely. <laughs> this is an easy one um, <laughs> for sure. And the reason why is once again, it's to, it's probably a little less, especially even for a beginner, to, to not uh, tell them when to go hard, but when to tell them to go easy. I think that the mistake that I see a lot of relative beginner athletes doing is they go too hard. They think if they want to get faster, they need to go fast all the time. And um, right. once again, I, I think that so if for nothing else, I think the value of a beginner using zones is to keep them in check and keep them in the zones that in the lower zones so that they can really build that foundation. Cause for a beginner athlete, that foundation is more important than anyone, you know, mm -hmm. like a more established athlete, like maybe has built that foundation over 20 years or something, whereas a beginner, that's probably what they need to work on the most. So using zones to keep themselves in check is, is really critical. And I, I think it's, I think it, any athlete uh, should try to establish some zones and should use them. Right. And we've already touched on this a little bit, but this question uh, relates to training and racing for Ironman versus 17.3. Uh, which zones should you race and versus training for Ironman and 70.3 racing? Yeah. Um, yeah, we kind of touched on this is uh, um, I, I would add the word specificity once again. And mm -hmm. uh, it is, is I would use I would train as you get closer to the race more in this race effort zones and building your body to the capability of being able to race or, or train in those zones for race periods of time um, over time. And so, you know, early in the season, that's, you know, for a 70.3 race, you know, you don't need to be able to hold uh, 70.3 power, let's say on the bike, you know, for a full, you know, 70.3 distance, but you can build that over time and get more and more into that. So it's all about 
specificity as you get closer to the race on spending times in those zones. But I do, and I'm a big believer, kind of to answer another part of that question, I'm a big believer in spending a fair amount of time in in race type zones uh, so that you you have that feel and you're, you're creating the physiology to be able to adapt to that. Yeah. And so I think we've already, we've already answered this question to some extent, but I, I want to hear you say it again, but um, is it better to do, if I'm putting in fewer hours, eight hours a week versus 20, is it better to do a higher percentage of high intensity, which we, we already know what, yeah. Right. Um, no, <laughs> I would still cut, I would still cut yeah. the intensity. <laughs> I didn't want to answer the question for you. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. I would still, I would still keep the ratios about the same. Now, it, if yeah. what, what I would say about that is also there's an entertainment value to training, you know. And if people only have eight hours of training a week, and you know, so they have to get you know a, a shorter, punchier, ses- you know, session in just to keep them themselves engaged, then you know, I think that that's okay. But ultimately. Um, I would say that, you know, creating that foundational work is like, is, is, is important and yeah, spending too much time in high intensity zones. It's just, it's, it's going to make you once again, a good athlete. It's maybe just not going to make you a great athlete when you need to be a great athlete. Right. And our final question from social, uh, relates to heart rate. Why does it vary so much person to person and are there tricks to keep controlling it or keeping it down? <laughs> That's just physiology and uh and it it ranges mm-hmm. even if you look at like um you know studies that are done on elite athletes elite endurance athletes the ranges of max heart rate values threshold heart rate values are incredibly wide it's a wide array and uh, that's just genes that's just what you were born with and it's not good or bad it's uh it's it's not like it's not like a person with a really high max heart rate is a better athlete that's definitely not the case there's no correlation there um, and or, but I think the, the, the bigger parameters to look at are once again, at what percentages can you do certain things at certain heart rates? That's the, that's the big thing. There was a second part to the question. What was it? I think you said, yeah. How do you, how do you control it or keep it down your heart rate? Yeah. How, uh, patience <laughs> and time. And that kind of goes back to one of the things that we were talking about earlier. A lot of times when I start working with like, say a newer athlete who hasn't been doing uh, aerobic, uh, you know, endurance type sports, they, they have a hard time going slowly and, and at a very slow pace, their heart rate is still relatively high. And I just tell them, you have to trust the process and you have to follow this aerobic plan and it's okay to go slow, go slow for a really long time. You know, and after months, you know, they start seeing, oh, and all of a sudden the pace starts coming down at those, at those similar heart rates and, uh, and, and, and even at the lower heart rates, and then they get it and it kind of, that's the aha moment for those athletes. So you have to be patient, um, in those zones and, uh, and give it time too. I think that's another big thing with endurance sports is like, uh, you know, this is, it's a long-term process here. And when I say long-term, I mean, years upon years upon years upon years. So you have to understand that it takes time to, to build these systems. Yeah. The, uh, the world of endurance sports is not one for those seeking instant gratification. It's a, it's a process of delayed gratification, right? The, the, the many months it takes to get your you know physiology used to running in zone one, zone two, whatever, and letting Big those time. things adapt and, and come yeah. through. 
And it's not all that glamorous and exciting often either doing that stuff. So it's just plugging away. <laughs> consistency. Okay. Well, that's all we've got time for here today, Ryan, but thank you so much for joining us. Uh, definitely a lot of uh, really useful insights there and we uh, certainly value your expertise. So thank you very much. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Are you ready to use training zones in your program? Having the right gear and equipment is important. And after this short break, our senior editor and gear guru, Chris Foster, will be joining us to give us all of his expert insights on everything you need, from heart rate monitors to power meters, GPS watches, and more. Stay tuned. Want in-depth gear reviews, training stories on the latest science, exclusive content, discounts, and more? Then check out ActivePass. Our ActivePass membership gives you a magazine subscription, two VeloPress books, and access to all of our sister brands, including Velo News, Podium Runner, Yoga Journal, Women's Running, and plenty more. Go to triathlete.com backslash ActivePass. That's triathlete.com backslash we'll ActivePass. We'll hit record. To okay, find we out record. More. We are recording. Okay, cool. Welcome, Chris. Thank you for joining us. Now, it's uh, fair to say that as our resident gear guru here at Triathlete, you have tested more than your fair share of equipment. And uh, you know a thing or two about what helps with training and, of course, training in the right zone. So do you want to kick us off with uh, a little bit, uh, a few of your insights with some of the stuff that some of the gear that you know helps with uh, swim training and, and training in the right zone for swimming? Sure. I mean, you definitely had it right. I have to test a lot of stuff. Um, and especially now, you know, we're in the, like the midst of our, uh, our big gear guide. Um, right. so all this stuff is like super fresh in my mind. Um, but as we'll, we'll get started with kind of swimming stuff first. Um, I know like Ryan, um, who you have on the program, he talks about pace being really important in the swim. Um, yeah. and probably not so much heart rate, which is generally what people use. Um, so when you're dealing with pace zones for the swim, like most coaches do and most triathletes do, you're basically mm -hmm. just looking at a clock, right? I mean, yeah. um, I, I know triathletes who have their own pace clock, which is, seems a little over the top, but in some ways, like to have a little LED right on the side of the pool um, that just shows, you know, your interval, whatever, that's super cool. Um, you don't mm -hmm. see a lot of people with that, but, um, but that's a good option for just, you know, basic, but you know, the clock's always going to be there. You know, that little second hand I can get hung up on some broken piece of plastic or, you know, someone's not going to unplug it halfway through your session. Um, so that's a basic thing. But then a lot of triathletes also like to use smartwatches. And I know that's a big taboo in the swimming world, right? Like right. you would never swim with a watch. Um, but I think kind of the, the best way to use a smartwatch while you're swimming is more for um, looking at everything afterwards, after the fact. I think okay. you should use a pace clock for while you're swimming, um, you know, and hitting those zones and the times that your coach or yourself has laid out. Um, but you can use that watch for like post, you know, post-workout analysis um, yeah. because a lot of that information is super helpful. Um, you know, you know, you can see exactly where you slipped and, and sometimes in the fog of a swim workout, you know, you can't remember all your splits. You know, you know what you're supposed to hit, but what did I actually hit? Um, and you can hit, you can get a lot like a, a pool swimming smartwatch a uh, couple hundred bucks. They're very common now. Um, yeah. They used and to I be. Do, yeah. No, I do. And I do think there's a lot of info that you get there that you wouldn't necessarily you get from those that you wouldn't necessarily get ordinarily just from a pace clock. Right. So like you can right. get, you can dive into your stroke rate analysis and yes. all those kinds of things after the fact that you right. obviously you wouldn't do during a workout, but. Right. 
Right. And, and, and you, there used to be like, you know, two or three decent pool swimming watches. Um, you know, Garmin had one for a while. That was basically one of the few. Um, but now almost everything has it. I mean, Apple Watch has a great one. Um, mm-hmm. Garmin continues to have a good one. All the major brands have these. So this is, this is not unusual. Um, but the other thing that I think is unusual and is super cool for triathletes, um, you know, we've been talking about just post, post-workout, you know, analysis kind of thing. But they now have these, um, well, one, one in particular, the form goggles. Yes. Um, yeah. Like, you know, when we first heard about them, I'm like, oh, this is a novelty, whatever. Because I'd, I'd used heads-up display um, cycling eyewear before. All, mm-hmm. all it does is project, you know, your speed, your power, whatever, onto your sunglasses um, while you're going. And it just basically prevents you from having to look down, what, a foot, you know, mm-hmm. on your bars. And you're like, well, that's cool. But the information was always there. Um something like the form goggles, it's a heads up display that displays, you know, your pace, your stroke rate. Um, if you're in the pool, it happens every flip turn automatically. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to hit, you know, lap or anything like that. Um, and that's like real time data. You know, you don't have to stop your swim to look at your watch. You don't have to dip your head up and miss your flip turn to look at the pace clock. You know, you know, if you're doing, you know, four by 500, you know, if you're on pace hundred in or 200 in without having to stop or, or anything like that. So that's like, I mean, I've talked to other swimmers, and I don't know what you think. I mean, you're you're an awesome swimmer. Um, I was just always not a great swimmer, but um, like I think I feel like that's a game changer. Yeah, to be honest, I've, I've got some on their way. As you mentioned, our buyer's guide, uh, which is uh, coming up our next print issue. But uh, yeah. so we're featuring those in the goggles set category of the buyer's guide, and they're on their way uh, to me now. So I'm pretty excited to test them out because I'm yeah, like you say, an old school swimmer. I'm used to the I'm used to the pace clock. And that's it. Yeah. Right. So having that real time data will be, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it kind takes it takes all that that stuff that was in the smartwatch that was always kind of you know taboo um, away from post swim to current to real time. You know, you yeah. can make adjustments. Um, you know, every twenty five or you know whatever. Um, so I think that's really cool, and I think that is very useful. And I'm actually surprised more athletes aren't using that. Um, Maybe they are. I don't know how how well yeah, form is doing. Yeah, I think it's to catch on. Yeah, I think, but I think it will be something that does. Yeah, I think I think it's important for listeners to know that it's it's not a novelty in the same way that you know the heads up display for cycling was. I think it's actually something like I've I've spoken to Ben Collins. He was an ITU guy, long course guy, swam at Columbia. Um, you know, so he was a legit swimmer, and he's like raves about them. And we have mm-hmm. articles of him just raving about it. And he's like, this changes the way people swim. So that's that's a big one. Like if, you know, if you take nothing else from the swim section of gear for finding your zones, um, I think the form goggles are big. Um, some coaches do like heart rate, um, for swimming, but more like, you know, like to remain efficient, um, and maybe to kind of use it as a limiter, like, Hey, don't go bananas at the start of your swim. Yep. Um, and again, that's generally been for post workout analysis. Um, but again, with the form, you can connect it to the form goggles. It sounds like a form ad, but this form has nothing to do with this program. Um, but, you know, you can, you can see your heart rate real time. So, you, you know, in a race, you can be like, okay, well, I don't want to go out too hard. My heart rate is through the roof. I need to dial it back because, as you know, in a race, like once you hit, you know, zone four, zone five early on in a race, like it's hard to come back from. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so that, that's, that's kind of a, another thing, but I think that's, that's swimmer and coach specific. Um, so not, not everyone likes to use heart rate for swimming. Um, it's also not perfect, but we'll get into that later too. 
Yeah, because it can be hard. I know um, heart rate in the pool can be hard if you're use, if you're relying on a watch to tell you your heart rate, right? Because, you know, especially with, I mean, we, we can get into the, well, maybe, you know, this will lend us, lead us to the chest versus um, wrist heart rate monitors. Totally. But I know that there is, there's often a debate or, you know, there's an argument out there about how accurate they are when you're reading heart rate from a wrist versus chest. And obviously in the pool, that's just, it just gets difficult. Yeah, I think I think the the issues you have with the, you know, the wrist base is is just another term for the optical, the optical heart rate. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'll talk a little bit about the two just just since since we're chatting about it now. Um, yeah. So what you see with most on wrist heart rate monitors, and this is this comes in pretty much every smartwatch you can find right now, um, to varying degrees. Uh, it's an optical heart rate monitor. So all it does is measure the flow of blood underneath your skin, okay, okay. using light and just kind of re- the way it reflects. Um, so if you think about it, obviously, skin color can, you know, play a huge role, the amount of hair you have on your arm, um, you know, how tight the watch is, because light can get in. Um, they're saying now that, you know, if you're riding a bike, and you have a, a you know, wrist based optical heart rate monitor, um, how much you clinch the bars can actually have an effect. And you're like, oh, wow. Yeah. So it's like, so, so it looks like you're going hard, but all you're doing is gripping hard, you know, and you're not trying, like no one's workout is like four by one minute grip hard, you know, like that's, <laughs> I mean, maybe in boxing or something, I don't know, but not for triathlon. I hadn't um, heard that. That's crazy. Yeah. So, so there's a lot of weird variables, um, with the optical Now, that's not to say they don't have their use. I mean, they're not, they're not garbage. In fact, some of them are very good. Um, off the top of my head, I know the Polar is very good. Um, yeah. the higher end. Apple watches are very good. I think the new Apple watch SE is not as awesome as everyone had hoped. Um, okay. I haven't seen great things from Fitbit, um, but they could do better. You know, they have a lot of, a lot of R and D. Um, but there is a place for the optical and, and you'll also find optical, um, armband sensors like, yep. uh, Wahoo has one. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's still optical, even though it's on your arm, it's not necessarily as good as the ECG, which we'll get to in a second. Um, so the optical, I think all the experts say that while some are more accurate than others because of the amount of sensors or the quality of the sensor, um, they're actually still very good for things like, uh, 24 hour heart rate monitoring, um, yep. you know, or maybe a long run or a tempo run, something where there's not a lot of changes. Yeah, um, you know, or or um, you're not going really high on the scale. Um, obviously, for sleep monitoring, it's good. Yep. You know, it's good Very enough. Good. Yep. Um, and it provides you with information that you know you're not going to wear a chest strap at night, and and it might not necessarily sync up right. You know, so so it has like really good uses. I think some people are just like, oh, the wrist based one is garbage. Don't use the wrist based one. Use the chest strap. Um, yeah, I think the convenience factor is huge too. You know, not having to put on a chest strap, and for women who are wearing chest straps under a bra, like, oh man, I used to have like what looked like knife wounds under really? my. Really? Yeah, oh, yeah. Man. So, so for me, like, yeah, you know, I know a lot of women like the rest, the wrist-based ones for that reason. Yeah, yeah, uh, and they're getting much better. Like, you know, I'm not trying to trash them, um, but but I also don't like when people say, "Oh, they're all garbage." Well, it's not necessarily true. Um, right. Yeah. And, and I think like you were kind of saying, you know, a wrist-based heart rate monitor is better than, oh, my battery's dead on my chest strap or I can't find it. So I'm not going to use it at all. Like, yeah, for sure. That's, you know, um, you know, it's better to have something than nothing for sure. Um, yeah. 
and and some people, you know, people listening, you know, we're talking about risk-based heart rate monitors. Um, you can most of them have a broadcast function, so you can broadcast your risk-based risk-based heart rate to um, you know a, a cycling computer or something mm -hmm. like that. So some people think, oh, I got the cycling computer, which we'll get into. Um, I need the chest strap, not necessarily though. Like I said, you know, if you want more accurate, you'll get to the chest strap. But so um, so chest strap is the most accurate. Um, yes. That that measures the actual electrical signals. Um, these tiny little electrical signals being you know broadcast by your heart. And I'm not like a doctor, so I'm not going to get deep into it. Um, yeah, no, that, that's actually my dad. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but so anyway, it measures the electrical impulses, um, you know, to varying degrees and it's not using optics. It's not, you know, skin color doesn't matter. Um, mm -hmm. you know, tightness matters to some extent, but not a whole lot. Um, and so you're going to get a much more accurate reading. You're going to, you yeah. know, if you're doing, uh, you know, 30 second intervals up in zone four for your heart rate you're going to be way better off using a chest strap. Yeah. Um, like every time. If you're going for a long run and you just need to know that you're sticking in, you know, zone two, zone three and not wandering out of it, you know, the wrist-based one is probably fine. Yeah. Um, but no, the, ch the chest strap is definitely kind of, the, it's it really is the gold standard for if you're focusing solely on heart rate training, specifically that real-time heart rate training that we're talking about rather than yeah. something that's after the fact where right. maybe it doesn't matter quite as much if you're getting these little jumps um, here and there. So that's that's kind of the breakdown. It's, you know, a lot of people think it's a mystery, the, uh, the optical versus uh, the, the ECG, but it's it's fairly simple um, and they both have their uses, but the ECG is always gonna be better. Um, yeah. yeah, so then moving on to the bike, I mean, obviously yeah. the, the bike world is just so full of all the gear and the tech that you can use for training and monitoring heart rate power you name it, cadence, speed, all the things. So I realized like this is a, this is a labyrinth we could be walking into here, but um, give us your take on, on some of the best gear that you found for testing, uh, for, for training, you know, training zones and testing your um, heart rate and power and things on the bike. Yeah. So, um, you know, most coaches use either heart rate or power. Um, mm -hmm. I'm sure as, as Ryan mentioned, uh, you know, power is just, it's just the best on the bike. Um, yes. Heart rate's great uh but there's so many things that go into heart rate and you know i'm sure he's already talked about that so i'm not going to get into it too much um but really if you're say you're just stuck with heart rate heart rate is your thing that's what your coach likes that what's your that's what you're comfortable with that's what your budget allows for yeah. um i would say uh chest strap you know i um probably the polar uh they have the, the h10 that's the gold standard for for chest straps um you know same thing for running when we get to running but uh, it's like 90 bucks. Um, you'll hook that up to, you know, just, just a, a bike computer that you can see that presents the information very quickly and you can see at a quick glance. Yes. Um, that's, that's the thing. Like you'll, you'll see some of these bike computers that are gigantic um, and they're great for maps, you know, but since we're just talking about heart rate training zones right now, um, you need that, that information to spread in a, in a graphical way that's clear. Mm -hmm. um, I would say Wahoo does a great job with that. They've yeah. got um, their element has little LEDs on the top and on the side um, that you know you can you can switch to program. Okay, I'm either in zone, I'm out of zone, where you are in your zone. Um, so I think that kind of presentation is really important yeah. when you're training with well heart rate and power. But 
um, especially on the bike. You need to, you know, you don't want to be cycling through everything, um, clicking buttons to try to figure out where you are in your workout. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I've always liked the Wahoo, the way they present the information. I've tried the new, um, the new Carew Hammerhead 2. I'm mm-hmm. sorry, Hammerhead Carew 2. I always forget. Mm-hmm. One or the other. <laughs> one's the brand, right. one's the model. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, but they, that one does a really good job of preventing, presenting the information in a very nice, clean, graphical way. Mm-hmm. Um, Garmin does a pretty good job. Um, the Pioneer head unit shows a lot, but is a little bit tough to get at a glance. Um, so that, that's a really good one for people who like to dive into data and things like left, right, you know, power balance and stuff like that. But, but for just like, okay, this is where I am in my heart rate zone. You need a big flashing light or yes. a big color. Um, yeah. that just shows yeah, you, think, like you said, the at a glance thing is what is important on the bike, you know, f- for, for safety, for training, for, you know, for all the things. Um, so yeah, if you've got, if you've got those figures in front of you, the data that you can just see at a glance, that's yeah. what's going to help keep you in the right zone. Yeah. And, 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 you know, it's like, it's like one of those things where when you need to see your zones, the most is when you're out of it, the most, right. Yes. You're, you're in zone four, you're in zone five, you're cross-eyed, you know, maybe you're on the trainer. Um, or maybe you're outside and you're just like, am I in zone five? I have like a split second to look at it before I like gray out basically. Um, so yeah, you really, you really need to see that. And that's something that I think people should spend some time looking at the screens. Um, whether you go to a bike shop in person, just, Hey, look, can I cycle through the screens real quick? I mean, Mm -hmm. not a lot of people do that. Um, or, or you can even go to the website and they'll show you all the different screens, you know, that present the information. And if you're like, wow, that looks crazy to me. I don't understand that now. I'm probably not going to understand that when I'm grayed out in zone five in the middle of a workout, you know, that's important. Um, so it's just kind of like a, you know, a shopping tip, you know, uh, they always say try it out, but if you can try out the screens and just, you know, get some experience with that, that that'll go a long way. Yeah. And setting up the data fields so that they're relevant to you and what you're looking for. So if it's heart rate, cadence, uh, speed, power, whatever, I think right. that's, uh, that's always important too. Right. Absolutely. Um, and that's, I mean, that's just heart rate. So, you know, we talked about the straps, we talked about the, the head unit and I think the head unit advice applies to, um, power also, and, you know, we'll right. talk about power a little bit too. Um, you know, something that displays heart rate well is going to display power well generally. Mm-hmm. Um, and power meters come in all shapes and sizes. I mean, and any, any triathlon coach will tell you power is the best. It's completely objective. You know, it doesn't matter if it's windy, raining, you know, you're hungover, you had too much caffeine, um, it's hot, it's cold, you know, whatever. The power yes. is the power. You're, you're yep. putting out this amount of force. Um, and so that's why coaches recommend power. You know, there's all sorts of flavors of power. Um, power meters right now, you've got things like the pedal-based, which is kind of what I've always liked because yes. power flip onto different bikes. Yeah, yep. so you've got like the Favero Asioma, the PowerTap P2, the Garmin Vector, um, you know, put it on different bikes, put it on your tra- your indoor bike, put it on your race bike, you know, you can yes. travel with them. You could take it to a spin class. Like that's awesome. Yeah. Um, so I've always Super been a big fan. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. the power, the, there's very little downside to the pedal based power. Um, I think some early versions had some issues with connectivity. I know the Garmin had some battery stuff early on. I think they've got that mostly figured out. Um, but then there are other things too. Like if, if pedal, if you know, you're in love with speed play, for instance, mm-hmm. you know, triathletes love speed play. They're a lot yeah. of float. Um, that's, that's a big triathlete favorite. You're not going to be able to get a power meter 
pedal power right. meter for speed play right now. Like that, yep. hey, speed play, if you're listening, that would be really cool. But, um, <laughs> but I'm if sure they're working on it. I'm sure somebody's thinking about it. I sure hope so. Um, but so if you're, if you're in love with a certain pedal system, which is important to some people, um, you'll look at something different, like a crank arm based power meter. Um, yes. that's probably the second least obtrusive power sensor. Um, you know, you've got something like the four I stages, um, yes. not super expensive, you know, few hundred bucks, 300 bucks, 400 bucks, something like that. Um, but you know, it's hard. It's not hard, but you got to take your crank arm off if you go on a different bike. That's, yeah. you know, it's kind of a pain. Not everyone wants to do that. Um, and then you'll get other ones like crank arm based, uh, or I'm sorry, crank spider based, which is going to be basically the whole crank almost. Um, you know, rotor has that cork has that power to max does that. Um, you'll have the full crank power meter, something like pioneer SRAM, SRM. And the benefit to those is going to be something like more like accuracy. Yes. Um, you know, and, and maybe, yeah, pretty much just accuracy at this point. Um, but they're also fairly expensive once you get in the accuracy thing. So they are, how much more accurate would you consider them than, uh, than say like the, the pedal base power? Is that um, a tricky you know, question? Yeah. Off the top of my head. I can't, I, I mean, I, I don't think, I don't know off the top of my head. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> we can cut that out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was being more, mostly more just my own interest. I'm like, oh. Yeah. I, I mean, I could look it up, but I think just generally the crank based ones are more, they're more accurate. Like the, the bottom end crank based yeah. one is more accurate than the, um, and certainly more than the, uh, I'm sorry, the crank and the spider ones are more accurate than the arm ones. The arm ones I think are the least accurate just because they have cheaper versions, but yeah, that's all pretty. It's all such a small amount of percentage that you're talking about at that point. Um, yes. As yeah. long as it's, you know, the big thing with power meters and, you know, we can include this, um, you know, accuracy is important, but consistency is more important. You know, yes. is it yeah. reading your power numbers in the same way each session throughout yeah. the session? Day after day, week after week. Yeah. Right. So accuracy, accuracy is like, hey, does my power meter add up to your power meter? Does the number that the coach in this book wrote down does that equal my power meter? You know, that's more of an external kind of back and forth. Yeah. Um, but consistency, you know, most of the power meters now have great consistency. It's just a matter of calibrating them properly and making yes. sure you do that consistently. That, yeah. that is where triathletes get screwed up more than anyone or anything because they forget to calibrate. You know, they just want to hop on their bike and they just want to ride. And, you know, um, so making sure you do that, that's going to allow that consistency, making sure your power numbers from one week to the next still add up. Um, you're, you're in the right zone at all times. So, and so how frequently would you calibrate your uh, power meter? I, every ride. Okay. I mean, I, I would do it every ride if you could, uh, you know, maybe okay. miss a couple days cause you forgot. Um, there are some that have auto calibration, but, um, but most of them don't. Um, yeah, it can't hurt to do it every ride because things like temperature change huge, you know, inside a power meter, if you're riding one day and it's 80, you know, or you guys are in Boulder one day it's 70. One day yeah. it's 20, yeah. you know, yeah. um, you got to do that pretty often. So I, I would yeah. say definitely do that as much as you can. Yeah. Um, the only other thing you're going to get for power reading, um, and this is actually what I would recommend if, if you're doing basically only your interval workouts, your hard workouts with power, which is what a lot of coaches do, um, mm -hmm. using a smart trainer, you know, you kind of yeah. forget about that. We talk about power, power meters, but you know, nine, well, I would say all technically all smart trainers have power built into them at this point you know yeah. if, if it's not if it doesn't have power it's probably a dumb trainer 
Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> but not uh, so smart trainer. Right. Oh yeah, that's right. So dumb. That's not, that's not <laughs> correct. <laughs> less, less intelligently. <laughs> um, right. And let's face it. I mean, most of the, most of the people in say North America right now, um, I mean, say for people in Florida, perhaps, or California, parts of California, most people probably are doing most of their riding on a smart trainer or you know, Abs- indoors. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, we talk about consistency and how, you know, heart rate's good, but not great because it's not objective. You know, if you're out outside and you're trying to put out, you know, exactly 300 watts, you've got stoplights, you've got downhills, mm-hmm. you've got, you know, like, have you ever tried charging downhill at 400 watts because that was the interval you're on? You're just, I'm going to die out here you know, and you're probably not going to hit it. And it's, you know, so really, I mean, the best, the ideal world is you're doing your power-based difficult, you know, zone targeted workouts on a smart trainer. Um, you know, and there's tons of options for smart trainers, basically $300 and up. Um, you got on wheel, you know, that's where you keep your wheel on and it runs on kind of a roller. Um, pretty much every brand has something like this. It's going to be a little louder, not as accurate usually. Um, and then you'll have the off wheel, which is really popular right now, but quite a bit more expensive, you know, starting at like seven, 800 bucks. Um, you're going to remove that rear wheel and actually put your rear dropouts and chain around this basically fake wheel with a cassette on it. Um, yeah. and that's going to be your, your most quiet, um, you know, most accurate, uh, most stable for instance, but a little harder to put on and off if you're kind of going on and off with, uh, you know, riding outside and riding inside kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but that, I mean, really smart trainer, if someone was like, what's the best way to train with power and get my zones and hit my workouts just right, just like my coach wants, or just like I want to, you know, do after reading, you know, a program in a book or a magazine, smart trainer. Yeah, basically. for sure. Yeah. Yep. So let's move on to the run then, Chris. I mean, you are a runner of some pedigree, so <laughs> I'm sure you enjoy testing out all the geeky gadgets for running. So I'm quite excited to pick your brains on this, but, um, <laughs> Yeah. So talk us through, I mean, talk us through some of your favorites and, uh, yeah, the things that you think have helped, uh, your training the most when it comes to running. Yeah. So, um, you know, I ran in college and we were decidedly old school where I ran. Mm-hmm. Um, we would do zone. I don't even know if I knew the word zone. Um, honestly in college, I think our coach would just be like, you know, you have to hit this pace, which yes. I guess is technically a zone, a pace zone. Um, mm-hmm. but more often than I just be like, go hard today or, you know, hit this, the split on the track or, um, something like that. So we never talked about heart rate zones. We never did any of that stuff. Um, but that's not to say it's not valuable, um, mm-hmm. especially when you're a triathlete. So yeah. heart rate zones, very important for establishing, um, you know, a program, making sure your workouts are hard enough. And I found more often than not making sure that your workouts are not too hard. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think Ryan talks about this. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you're, you're establishing this, this lower bar that you can't go above. And I think it's super valuable for that. So, so anyway, back to the, the gear itself, sorry. Um, you know, again, you're going to want, I think a chest strap, like, you know, the polar I was talking about before, um, for those, you know, interval workouts, um, where you are not necessarily trying to hit a pace, maybe more of an effort. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that information has got to be displayed well. Um, so maybe a bigger screen is better. Um, yeah. Garmin does a good job of this. Actually, Polar does a good job of this, that kind of graphical display mm-hmm. um, that just shows at a glance you're above, you're below, because it's even so arguably almost harder when you're running because you're moving around, everything's bouncing. 
Yeah. Um, so that that's also very important. Um, and then you can use that wrist-based, that optical heart rate sensor for more of your longer, your tempos, your long runs. Um, but going back to the pace thing a little bit, there are a few smartwatches that I, I don't know why every smartwatch doesn't do this. This as a runner, as like, you know, a college runner who goes on the track when it's time to hit hard workouts, Mm -hmm. very few GPS smartwatches do Mm -hmm. well on a track. Yes. And that is to say, just like when you're swimming, you should be looking at the line as you cross it. You know, it's, it's no substitute for that. Um, but there is something to be said for a watch that, you know, buzzes when you're on, buzzes when you're off, um, you know, can accurately track that data for your post run analysis mm-hmm. in a way that doesn't look like, you know, it's supposed to look like a circle and ends up looking like 5,000 squares just, you know, dropped on top of each other. It looks ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, because GPS, I mean, the reality is even really good GPS can't detect those, those turns, um, especially at a shorter distance, you know, like 400 meters or something. Right. Um, so it's going to, it's going to get screwed up. Um, there are two watches. I think there, are, there's probably more, but there's two lines that I know of that do track really well. Um, mm-hmm. Koros, the, the yes. Koros pace, which is like, I mean, if we get into my favorites later, I'll bring it up again, but Koros pace too. It's like 200 bucks and it's, you probably, yep. Emma Kate's got hers on. Nice. <laughs> um, they are like the editor's favorite. Yeah, it's like 200 bucks and it does. Well, anyway, we'll get into the favorites later, but it does a very good job of um, tracking track. It has a track mode. It knows it it does a little warm. You know, you have to do a warm up. You tell it what lane you're in. I mean, so you could be running lane four and it knows, you know, assuming it's a normal stagger or a normal width track with standard turns. um, It knows, you know, that distance, which is crazy. Um, Yeah, it's ridiculously smart. Yeah. Yeah. And it's all just built in the software, um, which is why I'm like, why don't other, you know, watches do this? Maybe they just don't think that many people run on the track, but triathletes should be running on the track, you know, now and then. Um, But so anyway, the the Coros, the whole Coros line does it, the pace two on up to the, uh, the vertex. Um, And then Garmin from the 245, which I think is a few hundred bucks, two or 300 bucks. I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, all the way up to their, the top of their forerunner line. And then I think like a handful of Phoenix models. I can't remember if it's the five or just the six. Um, but those are pretty high end. Um, also does a, a really good track mode. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that to me, that's like, that's an important thing to look for. If I'm trying yeah. to get my, you know, pace zones, which we, you know, can agree are important, um, for training, um, Data analysis, which we can agree is important for after the fact, um, something like that track mode is really important. So yeah, keep an eye out for that. Um, the other thing that I, you know, as I, I said, I'm a little, I grew up a little bit old school with running, but I've been really into is running with power. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. No, so I'm I've, interested to hear about this because this is something I haven't really explored. Oh, yeah. And when I run with this with this course, uh, the pace two, mm-hmm. I get uh, it automatically uploads my power, and yes. and it doesn't. It's one of those numbers that doesn't mean a whole much a bunch to me. Yeah. When I run, obviously on the bike, I know exactly what it means, and translate it accordingly. Um, but running, I'm like, what is this number? <laughs> well, I'll you tell know? you, it's it's funny. I'm glad you brought that up because um, it's very dissimilar to cycling power. Like okay. people think it, 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 to me, almost using the word power is like almost like a misnomer. 
I guess it kind of, it helps people with the, the effort thought, but, um, but so anyway, to break it down very quickly, cycling with power on the best and most accurate power meters using a strain gauge, the strain gauge simply measures force. And then mm -hmm. you take the force with the cadence over time or something like that, whatever, smarter people than me, the power equation, but it's the strain gauge and the actual force. So when you are pressing down on your pedal, there is a little tiny gauge that is, um, you know, deflecting and actually kind of bending a little tiny bit. And the mm -hmm. more it bends, the more power, you know, less it bends, less power. Um, that is not the case in any way in most of the running power meters we're talking about. Um, I believe there are some insole-based power meters, um, but I don't know how accurate they are. I don't think, there's just too many forces. Um, if you think about it, like that going to running, you know, I mean, when you land, your knee bends and your ankle flexes and your foot flexes. So, so there's just so much stuff that you can't really say, okay, running with power is exactly the effort I'm putting out. Mm -hmm. It's close, um, but it actually measures more like, better way to think of it is how efficient you are. So okay. you can use it, and I use it a lot this way, to be like, all right, I want to stick around 400 watts. And this is another thing you need to understand about running with power. Running with power, it's accuracy is basically horrible. Like, okay. you know, my running with power number is not going to be even remotely the same as my twin brother who, I don't have a twin brother, but say I did, a twin brother who weighed exactly the same, okay? In cycling, you would say, well, you weigh the same. Yeah. Power meters should be about the same. Yep. Um, but because, like I said, there's so much going on, um, you know, with your, the efficiency of running just in, you know, in total, um, that the accuracy means nothing. It's the consistency that matters, you know? So, so, you know, your number will go up or down based on what, based on how much effort you're putting out to some mm -hmm. extent, but also how efficient you're being that day. So you can kind of look at it in two ways. One, you know, I'm approaching this hill. I don't want to go too hard up this hill. I've been doing 300 Watts on the flat. I hit the hill and my Watts jump to 500. I need to dial mm -hmm. the pace back. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's more like the cycling analogy. Um, and that works to, to, to more or less, you know, to good enough. So you um, would use that like that in real time whilst you're running. Yes. And I'll tell you what, as this is how you need to set your running with power watch. You need to set it up to three second average, mm -hmm. um, similar to what you should probably be doing with the cycling. Mm -hmm. Um, because the real time itself is way too bouncy. Um, some people like 10 second average. And then you compare that to your lap average. That's usually the best. That, that'll give you a sense of like, oh, I'm actually pushing harder than I thought. Or, oh, I'm actually backing it off more than I thought. Um, so you, you can use it in a similar way to cycling, you know, to keep your power up or to keep your power from going too high mm -hmm. um, as a limiter. So you can use it that way. But, um, but kind of the next level of running with power, and that's you can set zones. You know, this is about zones. We're talking about zones. Um, you can set your power zones just mm -hmm. like you would in cycling, and it works pretty much the same, um, you know, ignoring all the efficiency stuff and stuff like that. But the next level of running with power, and, and you know, that's a little bit beyond the scope of today's podcast, but is going the same speed on a flat. Say mm -hmm. I want to hit 530 pace on this flat, and I normally hit 350 watts. I want to hit that same pace on that same stretch of roads of road at 300 watts. That is okay. like the holy grail. And that doesn't work in cycling. That's where the cycling analogy like doesn't work at all. Right. Um, because if you're hitting the same pace, the same flat section, um, you know, take out wind more or less, but that's not a problem with running. Um, and you're doing it 50 Watts 
lower than you were the other day, you've become way more efficient. More efficient. Yeah. yeah. You become what? 12% more efficient off the top of my head. And that's, that's the goal of running, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it's cool in, in that you can use it not only to gauge your effort like you would in cycling, but also to become a more efficient runner. And you know, the whole efficiency thing we, that, that could be a whole podcast, um, episode. Yeah. Just, and I guess one of the questions that comes to mind immediately for me is why do you think that power in running hasn't taken off quite in the same way that it has for cycling? Well, that's a super good question. Um, I would say that it's because I think it's a culture thing, honestly. Mm. I think cyclists love numbers and, you know, weighing things and aerodynamics <laughs> and, um, and I think triathletes are good with new ideas like running with power. Um, yeah. I, I would bet most, like if you were just looking at a proportion, I bet more triathletes proportionally are doing running with power than, um, than a regular runner. But runner, you know, runners are old school. It's like, I got my singlet, I got my shoes. I don't need some fancy blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, and, and honestly, running is a fairly low budget activity. Um, you know, it's part of the beauty of it. So, you know, if you want to get, and I can talk about this in a second, you know, the various running power options, um, you know, it's, it's more than just your Timex or, you know, just some basic running watch. So you're adding another layer of expense. You're adding another layer of complexity. A lot of runners, you know, Jonathan Beverly, the editor in chief of podium, he loves to just do these like soul runs you know where he just like pretends he's a bag in the wind and like (laughs) like i do the same thing and that's a big part of running so now you're like all right well heart rate was already putting me in a box power is putting me even a bigger box so you know but that said i know that if i had had um running with power when i was in college and certainly when i was a triathlete i would have been way better Hmm. way better because i had a tendency to get off the bike and go too hard I had a tendency to push hills uphill too hard and then pull back on flats. Um, and now that I'm training with power, I, I, you know, you see it. And you're like, I think I'm going too fast on this flat. But you're like, no, you're not going too fast on this flat. You, you, you're afraid you are, but you're actually not. Right. Um, so I think that's, that's a big part of it. I think with, it's kind of a cultural thing. Um, so uh, when it comes to running then, so obviously clearly you're running with power fan, but um, – as an overview, give us some of your favorite run, you know, run gear items, products that you that you can't go without when you're really like, especially if you're training, you know, training for an event, training for a race, uh, something that you know will keep you honest, something that will keep you in your in your zones. Yeah. So, I mean, running with power has far fewer options than cycling with power um, right now. And until I think there's that cultural shift with the um, the general running population. I think, uh, you know, we might be stuck with only a few options. That's not to say they're bad options, but, um, so we'll start from like the most basic and the cheapest. Um, like we've been talking about the Coros pace Two. Yeah. Um, if you want to get started with running with power, $200, it's wrist based. So some might argue it's not as accurate, but I would counter argue that accuracy with power is always kind of a crapshoot anyway. So as long as it's basically consistent, which is I've seen, I I mean, I use it all the time. Um, that's a great place to start. You know, it's built in. You're not like, you know, if you're a runner and you hate all that extra stuff, like, you know, like we've been talking about in the culture Mm -hmm. of running, um, it's a wristwatch. It's actually the smallest GPS smartwatch you can find. It's the lightest one as far as I've seen. It is tiny. Yeah. So it's, 
if you're if you're complaining about you know maximalist stuff, you could conceivably buy this watch, never use power, and then one day a year down the road, be like, oh, I think I want to use power, and it's in there, you know, right? Um, and it would still be a great watch if you didn't use it for power. So so that's at two hundred. Um, your other major option that I like and I've seen is the Stride um, foot pod. They okay. were kind of like the pioneers in the the main you know main realm of running with power. Mm-hmm. Um, it's this tiny little, it's like a little, almost like a button kind of thing. It fixes onto your shoe, clips on. Um, you recharge it with like a, I think it's, I think it's um, USB now. Um, mm-hmm. Lasts a super long time, um, but that needs to pair with a smartwatch. Oh, I, I, that's true and not true. You can, you can run it without a smartwatch, but you can only use the information after the fact. Um, right. So that's more of your analysis. Um, generally, if you want to use it during, which is what we're talking about because we're talking about training with zones, um, you need, you know, a smartwatch that works with it. Um, some of those, I'm trying to think, uh, compatible smartwatches, something like the Sunto F or I'm sorry, Sunto five and above, mm-hmm. um, the, the, actually the Coros pace two and all those ones are also compatible with stride, which seems a little redundant, but, um, you know, some people say stride, it has a little more powerful, um, platform. Um, the, uh, let's see the polar. Uh, Polar, however you say it. Um, most of the Garmin's um, yes. will work with the Stride. Um, so that so you're starting at the Stride PowerPod. It's uh, I think it's like two hundred and something bucks, 230, 220, 220 bucks. Um, so then you got to get that, and then you got to get the smartwatch if you didn't have it already. So you know that's you know to three to four hundred, probably more like a four hundred dollar investment if you're going with the Stride and you don't have a compatible smartwatch yet. Um, there are a couple other smartwatches that have it built in. Uh, the let's see, the Polar Grit X. Mm-hmm. That's about four hundred thirty bucks. So um, that'll do that. Uh, the Vantage V and Vantage V two from Polar also has that, but those are more expensive, like five six hundred bucks. Um, but that again, that's just a built in wrist based. Um, you know, pretty good accuracy. But again, what's accurate with running with power? So um, for me, I like the Coros Pace two simple you know doesn't take any extra setup yeah i think it might just win the editor's pick from this podcast oh man i know it's it's awesome it's one of those ones where i read all the features on it and i started using it i'm like i had to quadruple check the price i'm like guys 200 bucks for this like you could charge you could charge 350 and i'd probably be like take my money right (laughs) right 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 right. like that's that's a 350 dollar watch at least I i also used the apex is it the Apex or the Apex Pro last summer yeah. for a lot of running? And that was superb. I was oh, for a wrist-based heart rate monitor, heart rate watch. That was very accurate and reliable. Yeah. And it's so, a ton of battery, right? Like yes. that one just has stacks of battery. And the 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 one above it, the Vertex, it's like infinite battery, basically. Like I think it's like it's like a month or something. Right. Um, so th- those, I mean, that that would be another thing that you know I would look into is battery life. Um, runners hate charging stuff. Um, cyclists are used to it. So, uh, yeah, making sure you've got good battery life, but yeah, that's, that's what I would think for running. Okay. So let's move on to talking about some of the programs and some of the gear that you use for determining zones. It's obviously one thing to train in a zone, but it's, uh, the step before that is obviously, uh, you know, as we've talked about with Ryan, uh, it's determining those zones, assessing them, and then extrapolating the data in order to set the zones for your training. So what are some of your favorite programs or gear for determining training zones? Yeah. So, I mean, really that's, that's almost step one. (laughs) 
Um, yeah, we've done this the wrong way around. Sorry, guys. Yeah, no, but that that's okay. Um, because you know, the exciting part is using it and that's what you're going to do the most. You know, yeah. you're going to train with it the but most. You're going to do the do tests, yeah. you know, once a month if you're good. Um, but so, so, you know, for something like swimming, you know, we'll just start at the bottom. Um, that's just going to be, you know, a clock. Basically, you're doing your test set. Um, you can wear a heart rate monitor um, and, and kind of tease out those zones. But like I said, not a lot of coaches like that. Um, that's not going to be very popular um so yeah it's kind of like you and you're running old school like the pace clock is hard to it's hard to shift from right right and because in the pool well in the pool um there's so few variables so it's Mm -hmm. like you know this is that this is always that um that said in the open water um you know there's something to be said for establishing zones um that you could use something like that form uh, heads yep. up display goggle in combination with a GPS open water smartwatch, um, which I forgot to mention when we were talking about swimming way back when. Um, but so that that's that's another thing where you go, okay, maybe heart rate's a little more important there. Um, but again, you need to be able to see that in real time. So um, that said, the test for swimming is almost always just going to be time, you know, yeah. your test set, boom, done. Pl- pl- you know, plug them into... Uh, you know, something like training peaks, today's plan, keep that stuff in a safe place. Because I think that's yeah. a big problem with triathletes. They do the test, they have the data, and then they f- lose it or they don't update it enough. Um, yeah, you want to have that data somewhere that's readily available and easy to access and compare right. and contrast. And yeah, right, right, totally. Um, you know, or just you could even laminate a card with your, your pace zones um, for swimming. Yeah. Uh, um, but then on to cycling. You know, Mm -hmm. things get a little more interesting. Um, Mm. You have FTP tests, uh, you know, that you could do for both heart rate um, or you could do for power. Um, The basically the best way to do those FTP tests, I'm not going to get into the tests themselves um, because that's a whole other podcast and that's for coaches. Um, You know, something like Zwift. Zwift has an amazing FTP testing Mm -hmm. uh, thing. And you set up your smart trainer, you know, it walks you through it pops out your numbers on the other end again Mm -hmm. store those somewhere safe today's plan training peaks whatever um and then just make sure you're plugging those into all of your devices that's the other thing you got to make sure you know if you're if you did it in zwift you put it into you know uh today's plan um make sure those zones get put into your garmin also um yes you know and, and they'll hook up like that in some program instances but not always so you might have to go to Garmin Connect and plug in your newfound FTP zone. And, and that's an extra step that I think a lot of people are just like, oh, you know, I'm dead after the test. I have the numbers. Like, what else do you want from me? Well, <laughs> you got to put them somewhere useful. Otherwise, what was the point, right? Um, so making sure those numbers get into your device, however that needs to be done. Um, so that, boom, you know, when you've got your workout and you just have to say, okay, I'm in zone one, zone three for four minutes. Then I'm in zone two for two minutes, whatever. Um, it knows those zones. So, Mm -hmm. um, that's really important. Uh, but yeah, like, like I said, the best way to do an FTP test in terms of gear, smart trainer, easy. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. You can do it out on the road, but it's, it's not going to be as good. Um, it's, it's hard to find that perfect stretch of road, um, you know, where you don't have distractions and stuff like that. Or even if you, and from a road safety point of view, I mean, so much better. Right, to be able right. to do it indoors and not have to worry about anything else. Totally. And, and a big part of an FTP test for, for many of them, not all of them now, 
um, is, you know, basically almost hitting max. So you mm -hmm. are going to be dead at the end mm -hmm. of that, that test. So, yeah. you know, I mean, people slump over on their indoor trainer all the time. I mean, they don't hopefully not pass out, but, um, <laughs> you know, like you want to be inside and, and, you know, you can get a power meter, a pedal based power meter and put it on your dumb trainer. That's fine. You know, like yep. you don't have to have a smart trainer necessarily, but doing that FTP test, just do it inside. Just, you know, get a fan on you. Okay. Get a good fan on you because that will affect the test. Oh in yeah. A huge way. Like that's big gear note. Um, make sure you are cooling yourself in a way that simulates the outdoors. Um, because you're going to be using that information that you gleaned from that indoor training session, probably outdoors at some point. Um, yeah. So if you're like, I'm baking inside when I do the FTP test, your number is going to be jacked, right? Yeah. Um, and then you get outside and you're like, wow, I'm crushing everything. Well, no, because you did it in a, you know, a bad environment. So um, that consistency is really important for when you're doing that test. And, you know, there's gear out there that can help with that. Okay. And what about for running, Chris? So for running, you know, we're talking about 95, 98% of runners using heart rate. Um, so for getting those zones, you really just need to make sure you have a good chest strap for when mm -hmm. you're doing your, your threshold testing, your zone testing, um, because you really want to get that accurate information because you will be going quite hard um, depending on the, the test that you use. Um, so really, yeah, chest strap. And then honestly, like when it comes to testing, the watch is not quite as important um, because it's just recording all that heart rate data that you're going to look at later um, to try yeah. to draw out your zones. Um, so really making sure you have a good chest strap, not using your optical wrist-based, um, heart rate monitor for your actual run test set. That's pretty important. Mm -hmm. Um, and then if you're setting up your, your power running zones, um, like I said, they're not super accurate. So just making sure you're using the same power, you know, whether it's a stride foot pod or your, um, wristwatch that you would use for all of your runs. You cannot, yeah. do not generate numbers with a stride foot pod and then go out and use your Koros on wrist power, um, for your workouts. It'll, it's complete. It'll be completely meaningless. Right. Um, it's two different languages type thing. Totally. So right. just making sure you have that stuff consistent and you're, you're using the most accurate thing for your test. Um, that those are really the most important things for your run. And, and I would be remiss, um, uh, if I missed that, you know, the best gear for establishing your run, um, or not your run, but all three sports, really, uh, your, your zones. And um, maybe Ryan talked about this, getting something like a lactate threshold test, um, yeah. which, you know, involves going to a lab, getting your, your blood taken as you go. Um, that's, that's going to be the most concrete scientific gold standard. Um, mm -hmm. so that exists out there and I don't want people to think, well, you know, Chris doesn't know anything about blood lactate testing. Well, yes, but we're talking mostly about the stuff you can do at home or something you could buy right. Um, right. That, that would let you do that. Yeah, perfect. Thank you so much, Chris, for all of that information. There's so much there. Thanks your brain, for having me. Your brain is an impressive place full of so <laughs> much info. So uh, we look forward to you joining us next month on uh, Fitter and Faster. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, EK. Thank you for listening to our latest episode of Fitter and Faster. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts and please do us a favor and rate and review us. It helps us out and it helps others like you to find us. We'll be back next month when the topic will be indoor cycling. We hope you'll join us then, but until then, happy training.